0: been looking at the parables that Jesus told and we've kind of discovered as we've been going that these are little stories that Jesus told to intentionally agitate you and to disrupt your previous existing categories of who God is and what it looks like to connect with him because the idea is if you uh, have these certain assumptions and you hear kind of the same old same it just kind of just kind of washes over you but Jesus kind of tells these stories to bore into your soul and to aggravate you so that you actually have to come to terms with what he's talking about. And so we're going to look at a passage tonight which is a topic that I think is incredibly vital but it's also incredibly um, heavy. It's the topic of repentance. So let me read this passage and we'll take a look at it. It says this in in beginning in chapter uh, 13 verse 1. There were some present at that time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on some manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray and then we'll take a look at it. Let's pray. Father, I would ask in these next few moments, uh, would you give us focus? Would you open up our eyes? Would you unclog our ears? Would you soften our hearts so that your word would become uh, sweet to us and clear to us? Spirit, I pray that you would use your word to do what you always do, which is to um, change lives, to bring about humility, and to bring about repentance. And that is our um, prayer for tonight. We'd ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh I don't know if y'all seen these BuzzFeed taste test videos. There's like a million of them on YouTube now where you can literally type in like... Italians trying American snacks or American sweets. If you've seen these, these are, these are actually pretty funny. I, I watched a couple of them today getting ready for this. Uh, the one on, on Italians trying American snacks is you have these Italians that are like opening up a fruit roll up for the first time, and here's what some of them say Do you wear it or eat it? is one of their first reactions. Uh, they try Twinkies for the first time and they say uh, they, they taste it and they say the taste and the smell don't match <laughs> and one of them said which I thought was a funny way of putting it the consistency is suspicious laughter they tried nerds, you know, like the little can- the candy, and they said it tastes like medicine for children. <laughs> and so you also have Americans trying other you know, like delicacies from other cultures. And so I don't know if you, my favorite one that I've seen, there are literally like tons of these, but the favorite one that I saw was Americans trying surstroming, which is a traditional Swedish dish. Which I don't know what this was, but it's fish that has fermented in a tin can for months. And apparently when you open it, it's one of the worst smells like, on the planet. And so you, like, throughout the whole video, Americans are like gagging and like dry heaving as they're opening it and try, uh, preparing to taste it. And so here's how some of them describe just how it smells before they even like, look at it and taste it. Here's how they say, it smells like fish, baby diaper, cheese, dead body, and regret. <laughs> One guy said, "It smells like a national park bathroom that somebody dumped a bunch of dog food in." <laughs> and when they open it up and start like, um, like taking a fork to it, it's this brown, soupy mixture, and they're pulling out these like stringy, gelatinous pieces of fish that they kind of put on their plate. And as they are trying it, I mean, they're literally like, there's like, there's a trash can right next to them, and they're vomiting. It's like hilarious. So check out the Buzzfeed thing. But um, I think it's really interesting that when Americans try delicacies from other countries, other cultures, uh, we are extremely confused by it or like, just don't know what to do with it or are horrified by it. And the reason I begin that way is because I think that dynamic is very similar to what repentance is in the Bible. The Bible tells us that repentance is a delicacy. And for those that get it, for those that grasp it, it is delightful to them. But for people that don't get it, it it's, we, we don't really know what to do with it. At best, we're confused by it. And at worst, we're horrified by the thought of it. But it really is this um, delicacy. And I think it is one of the most misunderstood concepts in the Bible. And it's absolutely crucial for you to understand it. It's really a matter of life and death. And so thankfully, um, Jesus kind of lays out for us what repentance is all about. And and I want to show you that he kind of shows us three things about what repentance really is. He's going to show us the necessity of repentance, the nature of repentance, and then the cultivation of repentance. So those are the three big ideas I want to show you from this passage. The necessity of it, the nature of it, and then the cultivation of it. So let's look at the necessity of repentance. And to kind of get into this passage, we've got to do a little bit of background context in order for this to make sense. In Jesus' day and age, there were two recent current events that were really horrible, tragic things. The first recent event is that Pontius Pilate, who was the... Uh, Roman governor that oversaw this particular region where Israel was situated geographically he had some soldiers roll up into the temple when people were offering sacrifices and the soldiers for whatever reason we don't know historically they just started slaughtering the people in the, in the temple so that their blood began to kind of run it with and mingle with the blood of the animal that they were sacrificing which this is not too unlike uh, the horrific Uh, Charleston shootings from this summer where people are literally in church and then someone rolls in there and just starts massacring people. This was the recent tragedy of Jesus' day and age. And the other recent kind of horrible event is that some people were building this big uh, tower and it collapsed during construction and it killed 18 people. So in verse 1, some people come up to Jesus and engage with him about some of these current events. And you can tell by the way that they're engaging with him, their assumption is bad things happen to bad people, right? That there's a one-to-one correlation between your moral choices and your circumstances. So for these horrible things to happen to these people, it showed they were really horrible people and uh, you, you, heard, uh, you heard some people talk about this kind of back in the day even in our own country when Hurricane Katrina hit Christians stood up and got like, on national news and said this is God punishing the immorality of New Orleans people said this, it's a one to one correlation but listen to Jesus' response, here's his response in verse 2 and he answered them do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And here's what he's basically doing. He's saying the, the, the right question is not what's wrong with them. The question you should be asking is what's wrong with me? which is pretty crazy to think about. He's, there's this really horrible situation and he's using it as sort of a gateway to talk about this topic of repentance. He's basically saying this. Let's not speculate on the, on the evil in them that might have caused damage in their life because that's not how reality works anyway. It's not a one-to-one correlation. But let's instead first talk about the evil in you. Unless you repent, you will perish meaning you will undergo God's everlasting condemnation. And what he's doing by setting this parable up is he's basically showing us the necessity of repentance. Unless you have this, unless you do this, you will perish. This is a matter of life and death. It's absolutely necessary. But this is a big question. What, is that, what does that word mean? Repent. Repent at its most basic fundamental level just ma- it means to turn. To turn your mind to change directions, but again, this doesn't really clarify what it means because we don't know what Jesus is talking about. Change, turning from what to what? Uh, most people instinctively, when 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 you hear when they hear religious people like myself say repent. They instinctively think of a scenario kind of like this, and, here, and here's uh, this is a true story that happened a couple of years ago. Uh, I sat down with a student, wanted to, wanted to meet with me, and he had just gotten to the, kind of this low point in his life where he was overcome with all kinds of guilt about decisions he had made. He had done the whole go to UT and go crazy thing, like drugs and drinking and sex. And he sat down with me and said, look, Matt, I've made a lot of horrible decisions, and I want to be a better person. Uh, I feel like I've been living a really bad life and I want, to, I want to turn my life around. Can you help me? And I looked at him and said, no. I can't help you. And I'm not really interested in you becoming a better person. And I don't think Jesus is really interested in you just changing your behavior and becoming a better person. That's kind of like just rearranging the furniture on the Titanic, which is sinking. But that is what we think about when we think about repentance. It's turning from a bad version of you into a good version of you. And so you hear people say, repent, turn. You hear, you instinctively think it means stop drinking, stop cussing, stop sleeping around, and now start being nice and clean up your life and start going to church. And let me just hear you, let me just say, that's not repentance and that's not Christianity. Side note. Uh, Repentance sounds also a whole lot like the word penance. They sound almost identically, but they have the exact opposite meaning. Penance is not a concept that you will find in the Bible, but it's a concept that means that you pay for the debt of your sin with your own suffering. So, think of a scenario like this: uh, you do something really horrible, you cross the line, you go too far sexually with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you look at porn, you get trashed and you drunk dial your parents, like whatever. Like you wake up the next morning and you feel awful, like you feel that tidal wave of guilt and shame, and you just think I'm the worst person ever. And you just start beating the crap out of yourself, and you throw a pity party for yourself, and you send out Evites for all of your friends to come and attend. And you're just, what you're doing is, I am going to suffer, I'm going to feel bad enough, long enough to make it feel like I've paid off that horrible thing that I've done. That's penance, not repentance. Side note over. So, what is. Repentance, then. What does Jesus mean when he says that word? Here's what he means. Repentance, biblically speaking, is this. Turning from anything that you derive life from, be it bad or good, turning from that and turning to Jesus because he's better. And that might mean, okay, I've lived a wild, crazy lifestyle, so I'm going to turn from that to Jesus. Or maybe it's I'm turning from sexual promiscuity to Jesus. But it also might mean I'm turning from my GPA to Jesus. Or I'm turning from my obsession over the size of my body to Jesus. Is being in shape a bad thing? No. Is having a great GPA a bad thing? No. But when you place the hopes, your hopes and dreams as a person, when you derive your self-image and your self-worth from those things, those are what the Bible calls counterfeit gods. And repentance is forsaking the things that you're both proud of and ashamed of and leaving it to find rest and forgiveness and grace and healing in Jesus. That's repentance. And what Jesus is saying is that repentance is the one essential thing that you need unless you repent, you will perish. He doesn't say, unless you worship, you will perish. He doesn't say, unless you love. He says, unless you repent. I heard the story this um, past summer of a friend of mine who has a teenage son who's on the robotics team of his high school. And his, his whole high school robotics team was doing this big tournament in Canada uh, over the this week-long tournament in Canada. The summer, and so as they were gearing up for this trip, uh, the, the the mom starts to go into kind of planning coordinator mode, where she buys the plane tickets and gets the passport out of the lockbox and um, books the hotel. And seven other families are going on this trip. Packs the bags, gets everything ready. Week before they get in the plane, making sure everything is ready, and she notices that the passport has been expired. And now it is too late to expedite to get one within the week. Which means now this kid is not going on the robotics tournament thing in Canada. Which means now his family is out that much money for the hotel and for the plane ticket. But the robotics team, the rules were every participant had to participate if, if they were going to uh, compete. So by him not going, it now means that the other six people could not compete. And of those six people, every one of them had a parent going with them. So six families, hotels, plane tickets, all lost. Everything fell apart because one passport was expired. And I think it's really interesting because you know, this is a story where you can have your bags packed, you can have your uh, travel medication, you can have your pillow that you take with you on the road, you can have your tote bag, you can have plane tickets, you can have everything ready, but if you don't have a passport, you're not going. And Jesus is saying it's the same way with repentance. You can be a nice person, you can read your Bible, you can be a high school ministry leader, you can be an RUF leader, you can have amazing worship experiences, but if you don't have repentance as a part of your life, you're not a Christian. I don't know how else to make sense of that sentence, unless you repent, you will perish. It's that serious, it's that crucial, it's that necessary. That's the necessity of it. But secondly, let's look at the nature of it. Like, get into it. What, it, what, what is it actually all about? Well, let's look at verse six. What Jesus actually tells this parable, tells this story, and it's the story about this man who owns a vineyard, and he has this uh, has all these fig plants, fig trees, and he goes out to check on this one over and over and over, and he notices it's not producing fruit, and so after three years of going out and going out and no figs, no figs, he says. Chop it down, it's just taking up space. Now, you don't know this, and I didn't know this because I, you know, I didn't study until this week Middle Eastern fig tree details and stuff. So the the reality is that fig trees in Palestine produce figs 10 months out of the year, which is constant, almost constant, continual fruit being produced. And this tells you that the expectation of the vineyard owner was that there would have been constant fruit coming out of this thing all the time. And what that shows you about the nature of repentance is this, is that repentance is an ongoing, constant thing. Repentance is not just the way into the Christian life. Repentance is the way of the Christian life. Repenting repenting is not this one-time thing that you did back in the day when you became a Christian. Repenting is about today about like your life right now if you're a Christian. Repentance is about your life. Martin Luther, you know, famous 95 Theses guy. I don't know if you've ever looked at the 95 Theses, but the very first thesis on the list is this. Let me read it. When our Lord and Master said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance. That's the first thesis of the 95, that when Jesus talks about repenting, he's talking about that as a lifestyle. So let's let's do a thought experiment. What would that look like practically? And we'll just use me as an example. Uh, here's, here's what one day of repenting could look like in the day and life of Matt Howell. I wake up in the morning and uh, get dressed and get ready to go to work, and I've got to go down I-40, which is the route I always take to get to campus. And when I get on uh, I-40, I'm Uh, daily assaulted with terrible drivers that drive too slow or get in my lane and don't know how to move forward. And so most days on my way to work, I start off the day angry. And so Uh, Repenting would look like me catching myself of my anger and realizing this self-will thing in me where I realize I I really do believe everyone in the universe has to accommodate and bend to my desires, which is horrible. So I I repent of my anger and I'm reassured of the reality that God loves me and he forgives me because of the cross. Now I get to campus and I have a breakfast with a student and the student tells me of something stupid that they did over the course of the weekend and rather than just being patient and listening with them, I get frustrated with them because they know better and they're not growing according to my timeline for how, I, how they should be growing and so I catch myself and I repent of my impatience, I repent of my Messiah complex and I, I'm reassured that God loves me and forgives me because of the cross. And I leave that breakfast and then I go meet with another student and have coffee in the library and they tell me that something really horrible has happened and they're heartbroken. And rather than me just crying and praying with them, I go into strategy mode and fix it mode. I'm throwing out all these solutions on what they need to do to fix their life and I catch myself and I realize I'm a control freak. There's the Messiah complex thing coming out again and so uh, repent of my lack of faith and um, I'm reassured of the reality that God loves me and forgives me because of the cross. Then I leave those appointments. I go to my office where I work extra hard on my sermon. Not so much because I love Jesus and because I love you, but because I'm driven by such a fear of failure that it has to be perfect. And then I catch myself in this fear of failure mode. And I repent of my lack of faith and my fear. And I'm reassured once again that God loves me and he forgives me because of the cross. And we're not to lunchtime yet and I haven't repented yet of my pride or of my greed or of my lust or of my sense of entitlement that my time is mine, my space is mine and how mean I I can be to my family and how mean I can be to my kids. And You take one day like that and you string together an entire life of that. What does that do to you? I think it does two things to you simultaneously. On the one hand, it shows you the depth and the magnitude of your sin and on the other hand it shows you the depth and the magnitude of your savior after one day you already see that that your sin is greater than you thought it was and your savior is greater than you thought he was and when you string a lifestyle of that together because because you're finally being honest about your sin you know what that does in you it makes you um, self aware it makes you approachable It makes you honest, it makes you relatable, it makes you humble. You find yourself saying, I'm sorry, a lot. You find yourself saying, "Um, I was wrong, will you forgive me, a lot. If that becomes normal language for you, you're humbled and yet because you know his love and his grace for you, that's what gives you confidence and boldness and courage and stability and security and joy and obedience You're no longer dominated by fear and shame and guilt like you were before. That's why repentance is a delicacy to those that get it, to those that understand it. You realize and recognize God's using this repenting thing to deconstruct my self-assessment of who I am and to inflate my appreciation and love for God. That's the first little aspect of the nature of repentance I want to show you. And there's one other thing I want to show you before we move on. The second little feature I want to show you about uh, repentance is this. When the vineyard owner goes out to look at this tree regularly, he's looking for fruit, right? But if the tree was brown and dead and shriveled up, it would make no sense for him to keep going out year after year, month after month, to check on it to see if it's producing fruit. It just would have been obvious this thing's dead and it's not producing fruit. But the reason why it keeps going is because that tree looked like every other tree. Same height, same width, same color. It had the appearance of every other tree. It just was not producing fruit. Functionally, it was dead, even though it looked alive. And what Jesus is showing you is that the fruit of repentance is the sign that you're alive. He's showing you what it looks like to be uh, spiritually healthy. Now, when you think about what it means to be spiritually healthy, what thoughts come to your mind? When I say, here's someone that's really spiritually healthy, my guess is you think of a composite in your head of someone that either has it all together or is getting it all together someone who is becoming increasingly happy, someone who is conquering and dominating sin so regularly that they uh, are struggling less and less and less intensely as they move through life. Like that's someone who's spiritually healthy. They got it all together, they're happy, and they're struggling less. And Jesus says, no, that's not spiritual maturity. Someone who is spiritually healthy recognizes and knows their sin so much and they know their savior so intimately that they repent fast and often. That's the sign that you're actually alive. Where you repent fast and often. It's people that are spiritually alive that are honest enough to say how messed up they are. Which is interesting because that's what holiness is. Holiness looks and feels a whole lot more like brokenness that the more holy you become, the less holy you feel. And Christians get this kind of silly idea in our heads that Christian maturity is you needing Jesus less, which is actually entirely backwards. Christian maturity is not getting to a place where you need Jesus less, but it's getting to a place where you realize that you need him more. That's the nature of repentance. So here's the last question, and I'll be brief on this. How do we get it? Because if we're with a to the dead tree in this scenario, dead trees can't just summon fruit to pop out. So how do, we get, how do we get it? Well, here's the last thing, the cultivation of repentance. And I want you to look at what the gardener does, the vine dresser does, how he talks to the owner. Look at verse 8 and 9. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. If not, cut it down. And in this little exchange, he he does two things. First thing he says is, let it alone. Leave leave it alone, give it one more year, and if it doesn't produce fruit, then let's get rid of it. What he's doing is he's suspending judgment temporarily. He's buying time. And this is what God does. One of the reasons why you're breathing right now It's because God's being gracious enough to you to give you time. Time to accept his invitation to repent. And if you think, this is great, I've just been given all this time, I'll I'll get around to this repenting thing tomorrow. Don't be a fool. You are not promised tomorrow's repentance. This is about today, this is about like tonight, this is about like right now. What it looks like to respond to this, for God to give time for you to accept this invitation to repent. That's the first thing he does. He, he suspends judgment temporarily, in order to give you an opportunity to respond. But the second thing he does is he he acts. He does something. And did you see what he did in verse eight? He says, "I'll dig around it and I'll put on manure," which is very flattering. F- manure, of course, was a form of fertilizer. It was this. Uh, it was animal waste. It's gross, smelly, nasty stuff that nobody wants to be around. And Jesus says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take dead, nasty stuff that nobody wants and I'm going to apply it to the roots of this thing in order to save it. I'm going to take this dead stuff and put it on this dead thing in order to bring it to life. Which sounds exactly like how God always kind of works. Because here's this tree that's about to undergo violence. Chop it down. And instead there's this voice that comes in that says, leave it alone. And Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, is about to undergo violence on a tree as well. He's about to be chopped down and he's crying out to the Lord, Lord, if there's any other way to do this, but there's no other voice. No voice steps in and says, leave it alone. Leave him alone. The voice is silent and so Jesus goes forward and undergoes the violence, undergoes the chopping down, undergoes the condemnation, the judgment. He perishes. He takes on our sin and literally becomes... He dies on a trash heap for us. He becomes manure for us. Death, worthless. And God takes that worthless death and applies it to our dead roots of our soul in order to bring about life, in order to bring about repentance. And when you see, this is how God is gracious with me. He's given me the gift of repentance. When you see the grace in that, that's what actually makes you want to repent more. That's what frees you to want to repent more often. That's what changes repentance from something horrible and disgusting into a delicacy where you find real life in. Look, I'll end with this. I heard the story recently that um, terrified me because it's a story about two kids... That are actually the same ages of my two kids, five and three. A story about Brian Chappell, who, um, if you're unfamiliar with that name, he was the he's, he was the seminary president of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And when he was out there, his wife Kathy decided to take their two kids to the zoo one day, the St. Louis Zoo. They had just opened up this big exhibit called Big Cat Country. It's a big kind of open field with lions and pumas and tigers and things in it and so they're 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 walking with the stroller towards the exhibit and um on the way there there's this uh blanket that kind of gets tangled up in the wheels of the stroller and so the mom kind of bends down for just a few seconds to kind of untangle the uh towel or the or the blanket and when she looks up the kids are missing And so she goes to the exhibit thinking that's where we were headed. And when she gets there, she sees her two kids on the other side of the fence in the exhibit. There was this child-sized little hole that they somehow wiggled their way into and they were kind of gotten into this field and they were up on this rock 15 to 20 feet away from this lion that was just sitting in the grass. So mom, you know, internally freaks out and realizes there's nothing I can do. I can't get through this hole to go get them, and if I start shouting, it's going to alert the lions, and it may, once they realize that they really are in danger, it may kind of paralyze them and like freeze them up so that they don't move, and so she did which you know, brilliant moms only think to do, which is to get on her knees and to kind of open up her arms and to say, boys, your mommy loves you so much, will you come give her a hug? And they kind of hop down off of the rock and they run and climb back up and she has them in her arms and they're protected from a danger that they had no idea was that big looming in their life. And I think that is a brilliant, that's a wonderful image. (laughs) That is a wonderful image of what repentance is. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish, which means there is a danger looming out there that's bigger than we realize, and we're not really in touch with it. But rather than being like the street preacher guy that comes to campus and just shouting at you, repent, repent, he opens up his arms on the cross and invites you into his love. He invites you to turn from the road to hell that you're on. And to come into his love and embrace. And when he has you, his love will protect you and keep you secure and safe. But here's the thing. You must respond. You must turn. You must come into his arms. In other words, you must repent. Consider that an invitation. Let me pray. <laughs> Father, I realize that there are some folks here tonight in which all this language of repentance—it just—it sounds sweet. It tastes like a delicacy to their own soul, and yet, even as I'm saying all this, there are other folks in this room where this just—this sounds so horrific and abrasive and abrasive and offensive. And I pray that you would convince us all again of the sweetness of your grace where we would see your loving arms extended, inviting us to come as not an invitation to death, as not as an invitation to, uh, for us to lose ourselves, but for us to find ourselves, to find life hidden in you, protected from the judgment to come. Would you warm our hearts to you so that we would turn from any other trust that would intrude and find life in you and in you alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name.